0: Well, please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. Life is full of joy. Life is full of glorious, happy moments that you just wish would never end. Uh, Those sweet moments in life where you kind of think, okay, nothing's going wrong, everything's going right, and then something bad happens, and you look at your watch and you say, "Man, that was a good 45 seconds of everything being awesome." Life is full of sorrow and hardship. Life is full of amazing emotions that are so polar opposite of each other. We never really know what to be feeling, what to be thinking. Sometimes we're just driven by our emotions. And through it all, we wish that pain and sorrow would just cease, would go away. But the reality is, and we know it all too well, that pain and sorrow will never go away until we see Christ face to face and the end of Revelation comes true. We will always have trouble. We will always have trial. We will always have tribulation. We know that. But in the midst of it, how do we suffer well? A couple of weeks ago we talked about the Bible having verses and passages that we need to learn and we need to preach and we need to meditate on that will enable us to die well. I think this passage before us, one of my favorite psalms, is a passage that will enable us to suffer well. To suffer well. To go through trials well. We're going to see David in this psalm model for us a joyful worship that will transcend any circumstance he experiences or we experience. And as we look at him, we're going to see the characteristics in his soul that were passionate for God, that loved God. And in turn, we will see four characteristics that we need to have if we are going to be passionate about God and have him be our passion alone. You guys see the heading under Psalm 63. It's a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. We need to understand this context and we're going to spend a little bit of time on it, maybe more time than we normally would on the little superscription of a passage because it gives us the understanding of what is actually happening in David's life. It helps us understand what he's going through and I want you to know it and I want you to feel it so that you can see what he's saying to be so magnificent as God alone is his satisfaction. When he was in the wilderness of Judah, when was that? Well, there's only two times in David's life that we know that he fled into the wilderness of Judah. The first is when he was fleeing from Saul And the second is when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. But if you go down to verse 11, he says the king will rejoice in God. He's referring to himself, I'm going to rejoice in God no matter what comes. And so if he's king at the time of this writing, at the time of this fleeing, then that means it can't be option number one because David wasn't yet king. Saul was king when David was fleeing from Saul. So this is more than likely, commentators would agree, this is more than likely when David was fleeing from Absalom. So what is that? Just write down 2 Samuel 15-19. through 19. 2 Samuel 15-19, through 19, we won't have time to go through it. Uh, 2 Samuel 15-19 through 19 tells the story of when David is on the run from his son Absalom. It sets up the story. So let me just tell it for you. I'm going to tell it to you. David's son Absalom murdered his older brother Amnon. And he murdered his brother Amnon for two reasons, really. Number one is Amnon raped Absalom's sister. And so he wasn't too happy about that, and so he wanted him dead. But number two, Amnon was the older brother. Absalom wanted to be king. And so to be king, you have to be the eldest living son to be the heir to the throne. And so he figured, let's kill Amnon, not only because he raped my sister, but because I want to be king. So he killed Amnon And then he is now first in line to become king when David dies. But his discontent, desiring to be king, um, sin sin never is satisfied. And so his discontent wasn't satisfied. So he decides, you know what, why wait until my dad dies? I already killed one of my relatives. Let's kill my dad too and become king now. So what he does is he's he's a trickster here. He spends four years winning over the hearts of the people. He would stand in the, in the gates of the city. He would sit there. People would come by, and he would just listen to their pleas, listen to their cries. Sometimes he would instigate them. Hey, the economy's bad, isn't it today? Yes. Why is it bad? Oh, I'll tell you why. My father, the king, he's the reason why this is a messed up economy. Really? Oh, wow, tell us more. Well, let me tell you this. If you make me king, I'll fix it all. Oh, Okay. I'm on your side. Sign me up. I'll vote for Absalom in the next election. He ran a smear campaign against his father, so much so that he gained such a large following, he went to Hebron and he set himself up as king. He said, I am king. Forget David. I am king of the people who want to follow me. His following increased. He he gained more uh, followers. And then he decided, you know what, let's not just stay in Hebron and run our own little city here. Let's just go attack Jerusalem. Let's take the city over. And so he did just that. And when David found out about it, he told all of his government officials, all of his warriors, let's flee. We're not prepared. We're not ready. Let's get out of here because we are under attack and he will kill us. You guys remember the story, I think. David fled over the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem and while he was fleeing, he was weeping. He couldn't control his weeping and his tears. He fled away. And he finds himself in the wilderness. I don't know if you've ever had a, a prodigal son. Maybe you've had a brother or sister that you knew that um, was wayward, was causing strife in the family. David knows your pain. And even more than just knowing it and going through it, he went through it in the wilderness. He went through it in the wilderness. In a desert, literally it's the desert. It's a dry and arid place. There's no water. There's no place that you can be satisfied uh, in your thirst. And in the midst of it all, he says, my flesh isn't thirsting for water. My flesh is thirsting for God in the midst of the wilderness. This is how trials work. This is how trials work. Um, God takes us out into wildernesses, into deserts, So that he can prove himself to be enough for us. There's something interesting I love in Exodus, Exodus chapter 7. Remember um, the whole let my people go speech to Pharaoh? Moses and Aaron saying, let my people go. What's the end of that sentence? This is one of those where we we get the Iwana story, but we don't get the end of the sentence. And because we don't get the end of the sentence, we don't get rich theology. Let my people go, Pharaoh. And this is what God is saying. So that they may what? Worship me in the wilderness. Um, I'm going to take them out of a land that is very rich, that has a lot of benefits. And I'm going to take them out to a dry desert, to a wilderness. And there they will worship me. If I was God, which you are very happy that I'm not. If I was God, I would say, Pharaoh... Let my people go so that they can worship me at Disneyland, at the happiest place on earth, so that they can worship me in a place better than you could ever afford them. God does the exact opposite. I'm going to take them to a place where they have nothing. Why? Why is that important? What is worship? Uh, I want them to worship me in the wilderness. What is worship? Worship is, the old English is literally worth-ship. It's ascribing worth to something. So God says, I want them to worship me in the wilderness. What's the best way to figure out if something is worthy? The best way to figure out if something is worthy is if you take away everything but that thing and you are still satisfied. Take away everything but that thing and if that thing still satisfies you, then it's worthy of your worship. And that's exactly what God does to the people of Israel. He says, you know what, I'm going to take you out to the wilderness I'm going to strip everything away and say I am enough and you are going to worship me because you're going to see in that moment I have nothing else but God and God is all I need. He's all I have. He's all I want. Just think about the wilderness. If you're hungry, what are you going to do? Animals are scarce. They don't even like the wilderness. They're probably running away to some oasis. God has to provide. What about water? If you're thirsty, God's going to split a rock and give you water out of a rock. You need God in the wilderness. And that's why David is thrust into the wilderness here. And in the midst of the wilderness, he isn't saying, God, give me water, God, give me food, God, give me relief from the sun. He is saying, God, all I have is you. All I need is you. And I just want more of you. Michael Card says it this way. There is no true worship without wilderness. All worship starts in the wilderness. If you are worshiping God because of the things that he's given to you and then those things that he's given to you get stripped away and you cease worshiping God, then you're not worshiping God for God. You're worshiping God for the things that he has given to you. And that is the essence of sin, right? The essence of sin is worshiping anything but God. That's what Adam and Eve decided to do in the garden. Thank you, God, for walking with us, for giving us this garden. Thank you for everything that you have given to us and satisfied us with. But there's one thing that you're not giving to us, and we think that thing is more important than you. And so we're going to eat it. David is in the midst of the wilderness, running from his son, afraid for his life. And in the midst of the wilderness, he developed something I like to call wilderness theology. That true worship found in the wilderness comes from seeing that God is all I have, and he's all I've ever needed, and he's all I've ever wanted. So that's the the context. That's the the setting. David is stuck. He's in the wilderness. And as we go through this, you'll see four characteristics of a soul that is passionate about God and God alone, that his passion is God alone. His satisfaction is God alone. And that's really the goal of us being here at church together. That's the goal of the Christian life, the goal of the Christian life is to say, God, you are far more supremely valuable than anything this world has to offer, and I've set my sights, I've set my affections on other things that this world has to offer, and that's sin, and now I'm, I'm only going to be satisfied by you. And so David will lead us through this psalm to see these four characteristics of a soul whose passion is God alone. Number one, if your soul is going to be passionate about God and God alone, and he's going to be your only treasure, your, your only supreme joy, then number one, you have to have a craving for God above all else. You have to have a craving for God above all else. Notice what David says first in verse one. This is just verse one. A craving for God above all else. Number one, verse one. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He starts by saying, God, you are my God, a personal God. You are my God. And I shall seek you earnestly. My Bible says earnestly. Your Bible might say early. That's a literal translation of that. Early. I shall seek you early. Uh, But I actually think that the NASB gets it right because I think the the idea is not time uh, per se, early in the morning. Uh, We just sang that step by step, Psalm 63. Early in the morning. I will seek you early in the morning. I think the idea here is first priority. Above everything else, the very first thing that I will do is seek you. You are my priority. Another translation that you could put there is diligently. I shall seek you diligently. Um, Isaiah 26 verse 9 has this idea. You can just write that down. It has this idea of seeking God with diligence. And it uses this same word, but it's translated diligently. Also, Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 has the idea of priority. You remember Matthew 6 Seek first the kingdom of God. So early, seek early the kingdom of God first, but it's first priority. It's not first in time per se. It's not like at 6 a.m. Um, versus later in the day. It's not like if you seek the Lord in the morning, then you don't have to seek him at night. It's, I seek him uh, above everything, inside of everything. He is my priority. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Communion with God is so sweet that the chill of the morning is forgotten and the luxury of the couch is despised. Now, for those of you who went camping, um, I don't think the luxury of the couch would ever be despised. Uh, if you slept without a, a air mattress or without a futon, I had a futon and I could still feel rocks. I would love to have had my bed. I love My bed is just like a cloud. I love my bed. And yet, Spurgeon says, when you wake up and you're in your bed and you're realizing I get to seek God this morning, you despise the bed. You say, I want out of this because I want to be with God. That's what David says. Now, if I'm David, my words are, Oh God, you are my God, help. Oh God, you are my God, get me out of this. And then the next line, My soul thirsts for you. I can say that. If I'm David, I can say that. God, I want more of you. But my flesh, I would write, yearns for water yearns for comfort, yearns for peace, and yet David says, no, my flesh even yearns for you, faints for you, pants for you. Just like my mouth is struggling because I'm so uh, dry, I have such a dry mouth, I want water and I'm dying. So too my soul is just overcome with the fact that I need more of you. Now, I, I just, I find that staggering because... If you're in the wilderness and all you have is God, then I think God's enough. I have enough of God. Give me more of other things now. David is spotlighting who God is, and he says, I still don't have enough of you. I want more of you. I want more of you. How earnestly do you seek God? If you were in this wilderness, in this, as David says, dry and weary land where there's no water, would God be your first priority? Or would finding water be your first priority? Uh, whenever new iPhones come out, you will find the craziest of the crazy people that line up around the store, in the mall, around a Best Buy, wherever they are, for days before this phone comes out. Now, I have an iPhone, I've got it right here. I don't really look at it much, it tells me the time, and I just kind of let the time do its thing, and we keep on moving. I have an iPhone. I love an iPhone. It's great. It's a phone. I would never sleep outside in a tent to get my hands on the newest one. But think about what these people are doing. If you've ever done this, you're, you're not that crazy. You are crazy, but yeah, you're crazy. Think about what these people are doing. They're giving up the comfort of their bed. They're giving up the comfort of their food, their kitchen, a nice cooked meal for something that has taken priority. They will give up the comfort of a warm environment to sleep in a tent. Uh, Think about Black Friday when, um, uh, right around Thanksgiving, right after Thanksgiving, it's freezing and people are sleeping outside for weeks beforehand. They'll give up comforts because they earnestly seek something. What was the last comfort that you gave up to earnestly seek after God? I think that, I mean, I speak from experience. To me, it's like, let's make sure everything's comfortable and then we'll, we'll seek God. Let's make sure the coffee's strong. Let's make sure the house is warm or cool, depending on the season. And then let's make sure I've got a lot of sleep under my belt and then I can pursue the Lord. Do you wake up in the morning with your priority being God and God alone? I can lump myself in with the crazies because I used to do this with movies. I used to um, go to midnight showings or past midnight. I used to, I'm a Star Wars fanatic, and I used to dress up like Star Wars creatures and do all that jazz. And, um, so I, I understand that. It was a priority, right? Man, when that movie came out, this is my priority. What's your priority? Spurgeon says, he who truly longs for God longs for him now. If you truly long for God, you long for him now. No matter if you're in the wilderness, no matter if you're at Disneyland, no matter where you are. That's why we need Psalm 90, verse 14. We already studied this, so you can just write it down. We need Psalm 90, verse 14, which says, Oh God, satisfy me in the morning with your loving kindness, that I might sing for joy and be glad. I need God to do that. I wake up, and my number one priority in the morning when I wake up is not God. I don't know if you do that. That's a beautiful thing if that happens. If you wake up, the alarm goes off. Maybe you even wake up before your alarm. Everything's happy. It's like a Disney movie where birds are coming in and folding your clothes for you, and and they open your Bible to the place where it's supposed to be, and you start reading, and it just could not be a better morning. That just never happens for me. It's a fight in the morning, right? You wake up, and it is a struggle to love God. It's a struggle throughout the whole day to fight for satisfaction in Him. And so David says, you are my God, and I will seek you earnestly. That's his resolution, just like Jonathan Edwards, when he was 18 and 19 years old, wrote 70 resolutions to point the arrow of his heart at the target of God alone. Is that what you do every day? Is that what you did this morning? Is that what you did last night to prepare for this morning? Um, There's a phrase that I'm trying to get my daughter to understand. Sunday morning starts on Saturday night, and... um, that makes no sense to a three-year-old. I said, Chelsea, last night as I was uh, getting her ready for bed, Chelsea, Sunday morning starts. And She said, Sunday. Oh, well, I, yes, it does. Um, very smart. But we're going to bed early. We laid out your clothes. Daddy's got his oatmeal ready. We're all ready to go. Everything's ready because we don't want to be distracted. Sunday morning starts on Saturday night. When, when have you placed a comfort aside to pursue Jesus? David says, I just want you. I just want you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, Spurgeon says, A a weary place and a weary heart make the presence of God the more desirable. If there be nothing below and nothing within to cheer, it is a thousand mercies that we may look up and find all we need. How frequently have believers journeyed in this dry and weary land and how truly can they testify that the only true necessity of that country is the near presence of their God. The absence of outward comforts can be borne with serenity when we walk with God and the most lavish multiplication of them avails not when he withdraws. Only after God, therefore, let us pant. Let all desires be gathered into one. The psalmist says this elsewhere in Psalm 84, verse 2, My soul longs and even faints for you. Isaiah 55, verse 2, Everyone who thirsts can come to the the fountain of living waters and, and have their deepest needs satisfied. If you are passionate about God and God alone, then I can guarantee you He will be your one craving. He will be your one priority. And if you're passionate about anything other than God And God alone, then when that thing gets stripped away, you're going to have a really hard time living life with joyful satisfaction in God. Number two, if you are going to have your soul be satisfied in God alone and have a a passion for God alone, number one, you have to have a craving for him above all things. And number two, you have to have a satisfaction in him above all things. You have to have a satisfaction in God above all things. Four times in verses 3 through 5, David refers to praising the Lord. He says, praise the Lord, bless the Lord, lift my hands in praise, and praise the Lord. How can David be so joyful in the midst of so much turmoil? The answer is because David's joy comes from something that can never be moved. His joy comes from something that can never be shaken, can never be taken away Verse 2, Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. In verses 2 and 3, you see three things that David places his satisfaction in. God's power, God's glory, that's in verse 2, and God's loving kindness. I've seen you in your sanctuary. That's probably the tabernacle. I've seen your glory. I've seen your character on display, and that is enough to satisfy me. Again, we we say this a lot here at CBC, but if all we're doing here when we gather together is some hobby, it's a really lame hobby, and we have a lot better hobbies to use our time doing. Uh, This would just be a boring hobby. But this isn't a hobby. This is life or death. What happens in these walls helped David in the midst of the wilderness. We saw this in Psalm 73. We saw this in Psalm 77. We've seen this in Psalm 42 where David says, in the midst of depression, I look back at what God did in the tabernacle, the temple, and the sanctuary with God's people. He was real. His power was on display. His glory was palpable. And his loving kindness never fades away. That's why we study God's word, to see his glory, to see his power, and to see his love for us. Because those three things will never be moved, will never be shaken, will never be taken away. So everything else can be taken away, but if your satisfaction is in those three things in God, then you will never be put to shame. You'll never be put to shame. Spurgeon says, our misery is that we thirst so little for God's power and God's glory. The sight of God was enough for David, and nothing short of that would content him. When you gather on a Sunday morning, number one, are you coming because you are craving the Lord? And number two, are you coming because you are unsatisfied with anything else this life has to offer? And what happens in these four walls satisfies your soul unlike anything in this world. That's the goal. And that's why we pray that God would make it happen. So David looks at God's power, he looks at God's glory, and he also looks at God's loving kindness. Verse 3, God's loving kindness, that's a, a word, you probably know it, it's the Hebrew word hesed. It's a word that's translated many different ways. The King James alone translates it 11 different ways. So you see that word hesed and it can be translated 11 different ways in the King James translation. It's used 260 times in the Old Testament. It's usually translated loving kindness, but it can also be translated love, mercy, compassion. Some people translate it covenant-keeping love. It's a very hard word to define. It's a word that, that refers to God's love being lavished upon us undeserved. He's not giving us love because we've earned his love. He's giving us love despite us failing to earn it. One writer says it this way. I love this definition of hessed love, covenant-keeping love. When the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. That's hessed love. When the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing, we stand before God and we don't have a right before him to expect good things from him at all. All we have to expect, the right that we have before him to expect is his wrath. And he pours out, he lavishes his love on us. When the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. That's Hesed. And that's why David says that is better than life itself. That's better than life itself. Flip that around. Flip verse 3 around. I will praise you. My lips will praise you because why? Just think about yesterday. Why did your lips praise the Lord yesterday? They probably praised God for... The food that you had. Maybe you blessed the Lord for the food that you were given. Maybe you blessed the Lord for the rest that you got. Or for a, a nice rain that came. Maybe you blessed the Lord for just another reminder of his awesome power with the thunder. David says, My lips will praise you because your loving kindness is better than life itself. How would you answer that question? My lips will praise you because why? Why do you praise the Lord? If you praise the Lord for any other reason than God's love for you, then that thing can be taken away and sooner than later you will struggle to praise the Lord. That's why C.S. Lewis says, Don't ever let your happiness depend on something that you could lose. Don't ever put your happiness in something that can be taken away. If you put your happiness in the loving kindness of Jesus Christ, then you know, Romans 8, nothing will ever separate you from that love. Anybody can do anything they want to do, they can't take it away. I'm convinced that when people struggle in the midst of trials and circumstances, when people tend to fall apart, when things aren't going the way that they expect, it's because they have placed their trust and their hope and their satisfaction in those things. And as God takes those things away... We end up saying, you know what, God? My lips praised you because of that thing that you took away. So if you would bring it back, I'll praise you. But while it's gone, I'm struggling. If your satisfaction, like David's, is bound up in the never-changing love of God, then your joy will be untouchable. That's what I want. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for you. I want joy that is untouchable. There's a shelter built around it. if if you place your, your hope and your joy in money, money can go away. Somebody can rob you. You can lose it. Um, you can place money into stocks and they can end up dying and the economy can crash. There's so many different ways you can lose the things of this earth. Even good things that God has given to us. That's why... Uh, The hymn writer says, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth, and I would add, his loving kindness abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, just write it down. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, Habakkuk is saying, okay, everything that I have is going away, and he just lists his livelihood, though the fig tree won't blossom, though the the cattle aren't in the stall, though the the fold would be cut off, though he just keeps going through all these different lists of things. Though everything that I have would fade away, yet I will exult in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in my God. That's the kind of joy we need to have. That's the joy that I I, I just desperately pray for each, each and every one of us. That's my desire for you. I, I want you to be able to die well. I want you to be able to suffer well because your joy is in something and in someone that will never change. Um, that's why when we study in, in Bible studies, we're, we're looking at the things that we're placing our joys in other than God. And that's why we're trying to cut them off. That's why God's trying to cut them off. God's trying to say, nope, this thing that you love so much... I'm going to take it away. Not because I want to be a cosmic killjoy, but because if you place your hope in this thing and not in me, you truly can't be satisfied. So I'm going to take this away to show you that so that you can place your trust in me. I'm going to take you to the wilderness so that you will worship me. This happens in Acts 16. We studied this almost two years ago at the beginning of the church plant. Remember, Paul and Silas are in jail. They're in the stocks. They've been beaten Their bodies are being wrenched and and contorted in terrible ways. They're bloodied. They're beaten. And they are singing. And what happens? Uh, Because their joy is not in their personal comfort, because their joy is not in their surroundings or environments or circumstances, because their joy is in God and God never changes, so their joy never changes, they sing. Hey, God hasn't changed. We praise Him. He's still the same and His loving kindness is better than life. He is still worthy of being praised, and they praise Him. And what happens? People get saved. The jailer gets saved. Other people get saved. I want CBC to be so prepared to go through suffering, which is totally coming. I want CBC to be so prepared for suffering That in the moments of our suffering, we are singing because our joy hasn't changed. You can take away my life, you can take away my family, you can take away my livelihood, you can take everything away, but my joy, you cannot take away. I want to be like Paul and Silas, and I want you to be prepared to be like Paul and Silas, because here's what I wonder. Would anybody have gotten saved in that jail if they hadn't sung? If they just sit in the stocks like everybody else and go, well, my joy's been taken away. They're not singing the earthquake happens, they spring free. Why would any other person in that jail say, Hey, you got something I don't? Why can you have joy? Why can you have hope? The greatest times of our witness as believers, the greatest time of our testimony is when unbelievers look on and they see us going through adversity and hardship and trial and suffering, and we are filled with joy. And they say, Why? Why? And we're able to answer because God's loving kindness is better than life. His steadfast love is better than life. I have a burden that as I watch the church and I see the church love the world and be so entertained by the world and the things the world has to give, they're not evil. Um, Some of them are. I just pray that our church would be satisfied by God alone. That's my that's my passion, that's my goal, that's my plea. So the psalmist says, verse 3, your loving kindness is better than life. You can chalk up everything that life is to you. Everything that life is to you. And David says, you know what? God's better. God's better. And he has joy. He sings. His lips praise God. He will bless God as long as he lives. He lifts up his hands in the name of God and his soul is satisfied, there's our word, as with marrow and fatness. It's like chewing on the choicest steak, the most tender steak. And this is real for David because he hasn't had steak in a long time. He's in the wilderness. And he says, your loving kindness satisfies my soul unlike anything that this world has to offer. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Now, one caveat to this please make the note that joy, the, the joy that David has in the midst of the wilderness, the, the joy that Paul and Silas have in Acts 16, the joy that I long for you to have is not happiness. It's not a smile on your face. Don't ever make the mistake of equating joy with smiling and laughing you will set yourself up for discouragement because in the midst of a trial, you're going to say, I'm supposed to have joy, I'm supposed to smile and laugh, and I'm not wanting to smile and laugh. This is bad. Let me just read you some texts. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. Paul writes, We are overflowing with joy in the midst of our afflictions. We are being afflicted, and yet we are filled with joy. This isn't happy, but we can still have joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 10 We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So there is a way to weep with joy. There's a way to be sorrowful with joy. Job 13 verse 15 Though God slay me I will yet hope in Him. He's going to be my hope. I will hope in Him even though He slays me. Um, There's a song that I think they sing over in the children's ministry because my daughter just sings a song as loud as she possibly can. Joy is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart when the king is in residence there. Joy is saying God's in control. He's sovereign. He's in control. He knows. He works. He purposes. He loves me. And that's never going to change. And I can have joy. I can weep. I don't have to be laughing. I don't have to be smiling. I can be filled with sorrow. But I can still trust. Joy is trusting in God even when it seems like and it looks like he is untrustworthy. That's what joy is. It's a trusting. That's why David will say in Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste it, see that, and then savor that even in the midst of times when it seems and it feels like he's not. Unless you are satisfied in the Lord, you're... Trials will seem pointless. Your job will seem like drudgery at best. Your friends and family will be unsatisfying to you, and ultimately you will find yourself depressed and alienated. You need to place your satisfaction in God alone. Verse 6 begins the third point. So we've seen that if you want to have your soul be passionate about God alone, your only passion, your supreme treasure is God and God alone. Number one, you have to crave him. He needs to be your priority. Number two, you have to be satisfied by him. Nothing else in this world can thrill you the way that God's love thrills you. And number three, you need to remember him above all else. You need to remember him above all else. This is verses six through eight. Verse six, David says, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Why? Because you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Remembering. Psalm 42, Psalm 77, Psalm 73. We've already gone through those psalms. These psalms all look back at remembering who God is and the works that he has done. I don't know if you've ever been here. Has life ever been so challenging, so difficult, so... uh, anxious-filled, anxiety-filled, that you can't even fall asleep. Your heart's racing. Your mind's racing. You can't even fall asleep. I've been there. It's not a fun place to be. And that's where David is right here in verse 6. And he says, but I'm going to remember God. I'm going to choose to remember Him. And I'm going to meditate on Him in the midst of the the night watches. Um, There were three shifts during the night. This is uh, just a, a bunch of darkness. When you should be asleep, And David says, I'm still awake, but I'm going to meditate on God. I love the hymn, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. Be everything to me, God. Not be all else. Let nothing else be my vision but You, God. This is why Colossians 3 says that we're supposed to set our minds on things above. This is why uh, 2 Corinthians tells us we're supposed to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We need to meditate on God in the night when we are struggling. And by the way, The more often that you meditate on God during the day, the more those meditations will come back to you at night when you're struggling. The more often you set your minds on the things above, when the things of this world go awry, you will have a rock. We need to be obsessed with God. And just like David, we need to turn our attention to God and remember Him. Why? Verse 7, because He has been our help. He's been our help. He doesn't leave us alone. He, In the midst of suffering, it feels like God's running away from us. It feels like God just kind of rustles everything up and says, deal with it, and walks away. The reality is in the midst of suffering, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. He is coming towards us when we suffer. He is stepping in to hold us, to be the shadow, the covering that we can... Sing for joy underneath. Our souls need to cling, verse 8, to God as His right hand upholds you. Brothers and sisters, if you are in the right hand of God, there's nothing that can snatch you away. There's nothing that can take you out. There's nothing that can make you lose your balance. He holds you and you will never fall out of His hands. Those who have a passion for God, cling to God. Imagine what David is remembering in the night watches, he's probably remembering when you helped me, when I tried to stand up for you and fought Goliath, you helped me. You were my help. You gave strength to my hands. You gave a trueness to the rock as I, as I uh, flung it at Goliath. You were the one that did that. He's remembering all of these different ways in which God has protected him. And brothers and sisters, we need that in our own lives. This is why journaling is good. This is why Don Whitney says in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, that journaling is a spiritual discipline. It's a good thing to do because you can look back and remember, I was stuck and God helped me. God was my help. What are the things that you look back on and remember, even in the midst of the difficult times? You know what the best is that all of us should look back and remember is Romans 8. Romans 8, um, 32 and on. God crushed his own son for us. And if he's done the hardest thing, he'll do the easier things and take care of us. He will hold us. And nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. So we need to crave God above all else if he's to be our supreme treasure. We need to be satisfied by him above all things if He is to be our one passion. We need to remember him or else we're going to start looking to other things and forgetting that he is for us and he is with us. And number four, verses nine through 11 We need to trust in God above all else. We need to trust in God. If you are to have God be your supreme passion and treasure, you need to trust Him above everything else. And I love how this psalm ends. David is not saying, if I stare at God, all of my problems are going to go away. The problems are still there. Verse 9, those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. So people are still seeking. I know their end. We talked about that in Psalm 73. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But I, the king, will rejoice in God. And everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. My trust, I swear by God. My trust is in him. He alone is my passion. And he alone is my rock and foundation. Why? Well, because in verse 2, there's a past tense that's happening, right? Thus I... Have seen you. This happened in the past. I saw you in the sanctuary. I know you're real. In the present, verses 3 through 8, I see your power and your handiwork and your glory, and I trust in you. And therefore, verses 9 through 11 are looking to the future. No matter what comes, I've seen you act. I see you acting, and I will see you act. I know it will happen. I know that you are trustworthy. I know it will happen. David is standing firm in God and God alone. And even as he's standing in God, he's so humble as he says it, the king. Instead of saying, I am king, he's saying the king, speaking of himself in third person. But the reality is, he could have placed his trust in his army, in his soldiers. He could have placed his trust in his son coming back, repenting, turning. He could have placed his trust in anything other than God. And he says, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to swear by you and you alone. And I love that that's how it ends. I'm going to trust you even though I don't know the outcome. He didn't know the outcome. We know the outcome. His son keeps fighting against him and finally is uh, hanged in a tree, caught in a tree by his own hair and is killed. And David weeps even then. Didn't go the way that he wanted it to. Life doesn't always go the way we want it to and that's why we need to be able to say like verse 3, your loving kindness is better than life itself better than life itself so the question is this morning where is your heart today can you authentically and truly say that god is your passion above all things can you truly say his loving kindness is better than life you, you take take everything this is this is the old testament version of philippians 121 my favorite verse in the bible for me to live is christ and to die is gain life is all about jesus and then if you take everything that is in this life and put it on one side of the scales and you put Jesus on the other side of the scales, I'll take Jesus. He's far better than anything this life has to offer. Now, this is the Old Testament version of that. His loving kindness is better than life. Think about your life. Think about what is involved in your life and put it on the scales right now. Um, friends, family, a job that maybe you love. Maybe it's, it's your dream job. Marriage, food, financial security and stability, um, the love of your friends, pleasures that this life has to offer, uh, food, the sunshine, um, going to amusement parks, movies, video games, books, uh, Whitney portal. um, Just put it all on the scale. Can you this morning authentically say, God, you could take everything away? Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your kids. What is it that if God did take it away, you would be hard-pressed to have joy because your, your hope and your trust is in that thing. This goes back to Calvin saying that the heart is an idol factory. We just worship everything. That's why we went through that series on the idols of our hearts. This is just an outpouring of it. So, a couple questions. Do you seek God? above all other earthly pursuits and comforts. Do you seek God above all other earthly pursuits and comforts? Is he your priority? Do you earnestly seek him? Secondly, do you spend sufficient time meditating on God's character? Do you meditate on who God is and on what he has done? That's why we open God's word. That's why you read the Bible. We read it to meditate on his character, on his handiwork, on who he is and what he has done. So that in the midst of trial and suffering, we can say, you're good. I know you're good. I know you're trustworthy. Do you cling to God and depend on his power to uphold you? Do you trust him? Is the love of God better to you than all of life? We sing a lot about the cross, and I've had people say before, can we sing songs that don't talk about the cross? Like, aren't there other things to praise God for? Sure, there are other things to praise God for, but they all culminate in the cross. Every good gift comes from the cross. Without the cross, we have nothing good. That's why we sing about the cross. That's why we say, Jesus, all I have is you, and I can say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. If God's love is truly better than life, then it must be better than all that life can give. And if the world around us fades away, God's love for us still remains. And since God's love for us is the ground for our joy, then our joy can still remain. What I want to do now is I want to spend some time meditating on the character of God. I want to do that through song. I want to pray through these songs. We're going to sing a couple songs more than we normally do so that we can just kind of simmer in these thoughts and ask the Lord, are you truly better than life itself? To me. We're going to ask God to be our vision. We're going to ask Him to be everything to us. We're going to say, God, you are everything I have, and because of the cross, you are everything I need. And we're going to say, when all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. That's what we're going to do together. But as we do it, brothers and sisters, this is what we need to have as our foundation God did not spare His own Son. You and I deserve the wrath of God. Remember hesed love. When the one from whom I have no right to expect anything gives me everything. We had no right to expect love from God. All we had to expect from God is wrath because of our sins. We have offended a holy God and our sin is worthy of our death. Romans 6.23, the wages of our sin is death. It's eternal punishment. But God being rich in love. Brian read it this morning. We know these truths, but don't ever let them become just cavalier truths to you that you can kind of take or leave. Who cares? It's fine. God crushed His Son in your place. Jesus Christ, the righteous, bearing our unrighteousness, dying the death that we deserve, rising to newness of life so that we could be given a joy that is unspeakable, a joy that will never go away. So that in the midst of our troubles and trials and tribulations, Jesus will say, yeah, you're going to have those, but take heart. I have overcome the world, and your hope is in me. Father, I pray that as we sing, I pray that as we enjoy just meditating upon your kindness and your goodness towards us as we pray through these songs that David's conclusion, yes, you are trustworthy, yes, you are all that I need, would become our conclusion. God, I pray for those in this room that cannot honestly say your love is better than life. They say, yeah, it's, it's up there, but there's other things I love too. God, prepare us all at CBC to lose the things of this world, to lose our family, even our very lives, but to be able to say, to die is gain because we just get more of the one that we've been treasuring all along. Your loving kindness is better than life and because of that fact, our lips praise you even now. Be pleased as we sing, as we pray through song, and as we ask you to be our vision above all other things.